Section 15 of Between the Larchwoods and the Weir. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Between the Larchwoods and the Weir by Flora Clickman. Chapter 14 The Bonfire. I had pointed out, quite nicely and kindly, to Virginia, that she was not clipping the top of the square box-tree table straight and even. And she had pointed out, quite witheringly, to me that she was cutting it by perspective, adding that if I had only been privileged to learn perspective when I was young, I should have known that for a thing to be correct in its outlines and proportions, it must necessarily run askew and aslant and out at corners, just as the top of the box-tree table was now doing. She assured me, however, that it would appear all right, she thought, if I looked at it from an airship above, with half-closed eyes. And then she advised me to do a little hoeing. I ignored her sarcasm, knowing full well that a pair of shears, applied by amateur hands, to tough, overgrown green stuff, is apt to provoke cutting remarks when the wielder has got to the moist stage and the hedge is looking like a ploughed field. You see, there was an inwardness in her last remark, for hoeing looks an easy, graceful, carefree occupation, till you try it. My own method is distinctive. I didn't invent it. It came to me as a natural inspiration. I find I invariably start to hoe with my back, doubling up more and more, and aching more and more, as I proceed with the hacking. Then, as I warm to the work, and it's very much warm as a rule, I likewise hoe with my teeth. By the time I have set and ground these nearly to nothing, my hands all the while getting lower and lower down the handle of my tool, I find myself beginning to hoe quite viciously with my head. When I have extracted all the motive power I can from this part of me, and have projected it so far in front of the rest of me, hoe included, that I almost lose my balance, the only thing left for me to do, by way of piling up yet more energy and effort, appears to be to go down on all fours, seeing that by this time I am clasping the hoe handle at about a foot from the ground. Fortunately, it is just here that I usually realise what I am doing, and I straighten my rounded back, and undo my teeth, that doesn't sound polite, but you know what I mean, and return my head to its proper place. I then remind myself that I am not hoeing at all scientifically, that most of the energy I have been putting forth has been waste because misdirected force whereupon I stand at ease and other things like that. Maintaining the upright as far as I can, I take hold of the top end of the long handle of my weapon, and still keeping quite in the perpendicular, I merely hoe with my arms, thus saving the rest of me quite a considerable number of unclassified aches. So long as I can remember to keep my vertebrae like this, all is well, and I really get through a fair amount of work. But, alas, I soon forget. One thing I have never managed to do is to keep cool and collected, 
my misfortune being that I boil up so soon. My hat gets out of angle, my hair flattens out where it ought to be wavy, and waves around where it ought to lie flat, and, worst of all, it ceases to worry me that these things are so. And then I open a periodical wherein some unknown celebrity has been photographed at home, and she is sure to be shown in the garden, where, behold, you see her in the airiest of fashionable nothings in the way of a white frock, accompanied by a ten-guinea hat, a twenty-guinea dog, and a sixpence-halfpenny trowel, all worn with consummate photographic grace, as she artlessly sets to work to transplant a hoary wisteria that has smothered the photographer's veranda for fifty years, explaining to the interviewer, meanwhile, how she simply adores gardening, how she gets all her ideas for the dresses she wears in the third act from her pet bed of marigolds, and how she never dreams of taking part in a first-night performance without having previously run the lawn-mower twice round the gravel paths. Clever creature! You don't wonder she is labelled a celebrity. Any woman who can keep that hat on while using that trowel has accomplished something. I didn't feel like hoeing just then, no matter what the cost of my gardening outfit. The moment seemed to call for non-strenuous occupation, that would admit of leisurely movement and unlimited pauses, with nothing doing, which is what I find a mind like mine requires. Of course, there was plenty of hoeing waiting to be done. There always is. I never knew a soil so chock-full of weed-seeds as ours seems to be, and I never knew a place where folks are so little worried by them. Where things grow as easily as they do about our hills and valleys, and where the angle of the garden is just what ours is, you will find that the native reduces land labour to the minimum, and nothing is disturbed unless absolutely necessary. Reasonably, if you have left the hoe at the top of the garden, and the top is a hundred feet above the bottom of the garden where you are standing, you think twice before you climb up and fetch it. As one result of this universal conservation of energy, our local nettle crop is one of the finest in the kingdom, I verily believe. Why are those things left standing in every field corner? I asked a farmer on one occasion, pointing to the usual grey-green waving jungle of weeds. They nettles? he questioned in surprise. Well, what's the good of wasting attention on them? They don't hurt no one. Incidentally, I may say it is always well to criticise the methods employed on other people's land, rather than those practised on your own, since most right-minded employees resent any implication, no matter how politely you wrap it up, that improvement is possible. And if you question the why and wherefore of anything, it may be mistaken for fault-finding in this imaginative age. Hence, unless the handyman chances to be one of exceptional make-up, I go farther afield when gleaning information. One day I watched a man very leisurely inspecting a thistle in a meadow by the weir, and then, with a deliberation that was most restful to a harried, hustled, wartime Londoner, he tenderly and carefully cut it off near the ground with a scythe. After he had decapitated about twenty thistles in this way, he naturally needed a little time for recuperation, 
and sat down on the river-bank to meditate. I hadn't liked to interrupt him when he was working, because so far as I could roughly estimate, there were thirteen thousand four hundred and fifty-three thistles in the meadow, approximately, you understand, and we don't work according to trade union hours here. Sometimes we start an hour later and leave off an hour earlier and miss out several in between. But since he had evidently reached his rest hour, and remembering that one of my own fields was plentifully dotted with thistles at the moment, and feeling quite equal myself to that gentle, picturesque swish of the scythe, I asked him whether that process killed the thistle right out. My business instinct forbade my wasting time on the job, if it would all have to be done over again later on. No, he said, he didn't think as how it would kill the thistles right out. And why did he do it that way? I asked, instead of spudding the thing right up by the root. Well, and he scratched his head thoughtfully, doing it like this just discourages of them a bit, and isn't such a deluge of trouble as mooting them right out would be. And with that he promptly dropped thistles, and proceeded to discuss the fiendishness of the Germans. He had a long talk, there wasn't room for me to say anything, and gave recipes for annihilating completely everything connected with them, excepting thistles. I presume they have some. They deserve a good crop anyhow. Finishing up with, but there, what I says about them I won't exactly repeat in your presence, hm? For my wife often says to me, it won't do nobody no particular good, she says, if you gets yourself shut out of heaven by your language, she says, just to spite em Huns, what don't even hear it. For a full two minutes he worked that scythe with real zest, as though on slaughtering the enemy. Perhaps his method is right, in regard to thistles, I mean. Perhaps it is wrong. I have never gone sufficiently deep into the subject to be competent to pass an opinion. But I do know that the larger proportion of handymen who have honoured me with their patronage, though there are conspicuous exceptions, invariably weed on these lines of least resistance and just discourage them though I own it takes a lot to discourage our weeds. Not feeling like discouraging weeds at the moment, I asked Ursula to suggest some occupation for my idle hands, though I didn't put it like that. I inquired which of the many jobs needing urgent attention I had better tackle next. It came to the same thing in the end, but instead of advertising my natural indolence, I hoped it would convey an impression that I was rushing pell-mell through an endless succession of tasks. Ursula was sitting on a pile of logs under a big fir-tree inside the orchard gate. Oh, yes, there are firs in the orchard, and lilacs, and daffodils, and snowdrops, and a huge wellingtonia, and a trickle of water with forget-me-nots and mint on its brink. We are not at all particular about classification. She was darning a stocking and it seemed a lengthy job. Not that there was any large vulgar gash in the stocking. It was merely suffering from general wartime debility, and was one of those that you can go on and on darning, and still find more thin places to run up and down. Have you ever noticed what a snare a stocking of this description can be? You can sit at it for an hour or so, until it seems easier to go on darning it than to bestir yourself to do anything else. 
In the end, you haven't accomplished much, considering the time you've been about it, but you have acquired a large dose of the virtuous and exemplary feeling that is always the outcome of stocking darning. Ursula had got like that, though I wouldn't have you think I underestimated her efforts, for it was my apparel she was darning. "'I often think that a garden embodies all the philosophy of life,' she replied to my query, in a detached way, as she closely inspected the stocking foot drawn over her hand, in order to pounce upon any further signs of impending dissolution. "'I seem to fancy I've heard that.' "'Oh, I've no doubt someone has said it before me. "'I've noticed over and over again "'that people plagiarise my really cleverest remarks "'before I've actually had time to say them myself. "'And I think something ought to be done "'to prevent the infringement of copyright in this barefaced way. "'But all the same, whether anyone has or has not "'already helped themselves to this unique creation of my brain,' The fact remains that I thought it out for myself, alone and unaided, and the more I meditate upon it, the more I notice what heaps of things in the garden resemble life. As for example, well, slugs, for instance, and the bindweed, and the rabbits, and the broad beans. They all seem to typify that here we have no abiding anything. I agreed mournfully as I thought of the succulent, hopeful-looking scarlet runners that the slugs had eaten right through the tender main stems close to the ground. It was a sad awakening for us the day we found a few score of limp and dying remains, where overnight we had watered as promising a row of youngsters as one could have wished to see. To our grieving spirits, it seemed as though it wouldn't have been nearly so bad if they had eaten the leaves and left us the stems. At least more leaves might have grown, whereas now... And the bindweed! Where could you find a more striking analogy to original sin? Flaunting beautiful flowers, which I greatly love, yet all the while spreading wicked roots out of sight, choking everything it lays hold of, turning up in the most unlooked-for places. But there is no need to write more under this heading. A healthy crop of bindweed and I never knew one that wasn't most irritatingly healthy, could give points to a preacher every Sunday in the year, and then have enough to spare for the weeknight services. And when he had done with bindweed, he could start afresh on mint. Rabbits, again, are dear things, with an appeal that is quite different from that of any other of the wild things. Sometimes in the past, when I have been doomed to sit for an hour or so, in the airlessness and weariness of crowded hall or place of entertainment, or in the loneliness of a congested social function, where everybody is too buzzingly busy with being social to have time to say a word to anyone, I just switch my mind right off the glare and the heat and the stuffiness and the superficiality and the heartlessness and take a look at the little orchard adjoining the cottage garden and for just a minute I watched the rabbits, nibbling the grass, sitting up on their hind legs to get a better view of any possible enemy approach, and scampering back to cover in the coppice with a bobbing of white tails at the least suspicion of danger. To a woman there is something very touching about the timidity of these little brown things. 
I always wish I could make them understand that I am their friend, and not their enemy. But this is a difficult matter, because there is the small white dog to be considered in the compact, and there is no sentimentality about him where rabbits are concerned. I wouldn't be without these little furry families in the coppice, but, oh, I do wish they would leave the young cabbages alone or at any rate spare the tenderest of the green leaves. It's a bit damping even to ardour like ours to be greeted, when we arrive from town, by a gardener waving a deprecating hand over rows of hardy cabbage stumps bereft of leaves. At such times it seems as though it wouldn't have been nearly so bad if they had eaten the stems and left us the leaves. At least we could have cooked them. Whereas now... Rabbits certainly emphasise the fact that life grows thistles as well as figs. With regard to the beans, it is difficult to be philosophical. I can be to some extent resigned when my misfortunes are handed out to me by nature, but it is a different thing when they are manufactured for me, at my expense too, by my fellow creatures. On the whole... I cannot speak too highly of the men who have worked for me about the flower-patch. I have been exceedingly well served. But now and again one comes upon misfortune, and on one occasion I found I had engaged an Ananias of the most proficient type. During his brief regime, the weeds thrived apace, while the choicest bulbs and flowers took on a world of discouragement. When the black pansies and the heliotrope Spanish iris feathered with white and yellow, and the rare delphiniums and the yellow arum lily disappeared at one fell swoop. Ananias shook his head sadly, and put their defalcation down to the rush of the rain and the angle of the earth. Everything do simply run off this soil, he explained. Quite true, it certainly did and two legs invariably ran with it, and the vegetables seemed as subject to discouragement as the flowers, though it was always referred to as blight. There were the broad beans, for instance. I had given him two quarts of seed, and indicated where I would like them planted. They were a special prize strain that had been sent to me by a famous firm of seedsmen, who had been moved to this generous deed on reading some of the chronicles of the flower-patch when they were first published in the woman's magazine. The head of the firm wrote me that they were a new mammoth variety and they would be pleased if I would try them in my cottage garden. We planned great things when those broad beans should be ready. Two quarts would make about ten rows, we reckoned, quite a goodly plantation for us, and we decided that as we should have plenty, considering our small household, we would be extravagant and gather our first dishful when they were quite young, and in that delicious tender state that is unknown to the town-dweller, who seldom sees a broad bean till it is a tough old patriarch, and in such a condition considers it a coarse vegetable. It was a cold day in February when I handed the seed to Ananias. We were returning to London the same day, so we beguiled part of the long journey discussing whether that first dish should be accompanied by parsley sauce and boiled ham, or whether to fry the ham and have the broad beans given one turn in the frying pan after they were boiled. 
the subject seemed more and more vital the further we got along the road, for we couldn't get luncheon baskets. No, not the war. It was before that event, and due to one of the many cheerful strikes with which our pre-war existence was punctuated. And the bananas and banbury cakes we purchased en route seemed woefully unsatisfying. Hence, it was pleasant, but very tantalising, to contemplate that dish of beans. And we finally agreed that the ham should be fried, and that we would dig some new potatoes, specially for the occasion. We sat and meditated on that meal, as the winter landscape flew past us, and the more we meditated, the more violently hungry we got. You see, the beans really assumed more than ordinary importance. But alas, when bean time came, all that decorated the bean plot was one miserable row of wretched-looking stalks. "'It's that there blight again,' remarked Ananias. "'I watched it a-coming up the valley.' "'But why didn't you pinch off the tops if they were showing blight?' I inquired. "'Then they would have made fresh shoots lower down.' He shook his head and looked at me pityingly. "'We don't do our beans like that a here.' "'Where are all the other rows?' I asked. "'I suppose blight didn't carry off roots and all the remainder.' "'No, t'were slugs, I warrant, or birds, or else the seed was stale, maybe.' Ursula carefully turned over the rest of the ground later on, but never a glimmer of a benighted bean did she find. Still, Ananias was, as usual, quite willing to be obliging. "'My beans has done uncommon well this year,' he continued. "'It's just all accordin' how it takes em. Sometimes mine does well, and t'other people's doesn't, and then again t'other people's have a fine crop, and I won't have a bean.' I can let you have some of mine if you like. I know you're powerful fond of broad beans. I allus say you're just like my missus. I'm sorry I haven't a portrait of stout, unwashed, sixty-five-year-old Sapphira to reproduce. Without it you cannot possibly understand how pleased I was. He brought over half a bushel, explaining that he had to charge tuppence a pound more than other people, as these were specially large and good yielders that were expensive in the first place. They were remarkably fine beans, indeed as fine as I have ever seen, and I wrote to the firm of seedsmen and told them their mammoth variety had proved all they claimed for it. I conclude the miserable row in my garden was a tuppenny packet bought from the travelling huckster who peddles seeds around the villages at suitable seasons. These instances are sufficient to indicate the trend of Ursula's thoughts when she started to philosophise on the garden. She interrupted her valuable remarks, however, to exclaim, "'Do look at that wench!' And Virginia might well be looked at. Her exertions had turned her the colour of a peony. Down her face streamed copious extract of forehead. The clipping mania had got thorough hold of her, and she was trying to trim every hedge about the place, leaving in her wake a trail of clippings for someone else to clear up, as is the way with all first-class amateurs. The next task pointed out itself. Ursula got a birch broom while I trundled the wheelbarrow out of the tool barn, and seeing that there was already a pile of green stuff waiting disposal, 
I started a bonfire, while Ursula swept up and supplied extra fuel. I feel sorry for the town-dweller. He knows nothing of the real charm of a bonfire. All too often the word stands to him for nothing more than a mass of damp and decaying leaves that simply won't burn. He can only attend to it after his return from business, unless he be one of the favoured few in town who have gardens sufficiently large to allow of their keeping regular gardeners. And unfortunately, the lighting restrictions of the present day give no real scope to the bonfire maker, even if he has anything worth burning. His dank mass smoulders to death, or he adds paraffin to encourage it, and the neighbours close their windows with meaning violence, while the parish reeks of the obnoxious odour. Seldom has he air enough to fan anything like a good fire, and at length, after burning the dozenth newspaper, and listening to minute statistical particularization on the part of his wife, regarding the present price of matches, collectively and individually, with deviations, re sultanas, lemon soles, kitchen tea, coal cards, sugar for the charwoman, halfpenny per pound for delivery, soda, a financial comparison of pre-war sirloin with modern soup bones, and the antiquity of the new-laid hen, he flings himself disgustedly indoors again, depositing a layer of greasy town-garden soil and dead leaves on the doormat, and perchance trailing it up to his dressing-room. The town bonfire is usually an abomination. The country bonfire is often sheer delight, and the reason for this difference is due to the fact that the shut-in nature of the average town backplot seldom supplies the good current of air that a bonfire needs to get it going full swing. And more than this, the refuse that collects in a town garden is often sooty, unsanitary, and malodorous. Whereas in the country, there is a great diversity of stuff to be burnt, and much of it is delightfully aromatic. Also, the wind that sweeps continually over our hills, for instance, dries up the rubbish pile, unless it be actually raining. We seldom get that dank, sodden stuff that is the bane of the town gardener. We can always get a current of air, if not a stiff breeze, to fan the first stages, and being unhampered by the claims of city offices, we can start it in the morning and keep it going the whole day long. Our only trouble is to get the red-hot mass to slumber through the night. It has such a trick of suddenly bursting out again about 2 a.m., lighting up the cottage in the dark and flaming forth a vivid beacon worthy of the men of Harlech and recalling stirring scenes in old romance. Only the local constabulary have no poetic leanings and merely see in it a case for a ten-pound fine under the Defence of the Realm Act. I started the bonfire, not with newspapers, these are far too few and precious. Why, our very paper bags are smoothed out and treasured in a dresser drawer. Some done with straw and dry leaves make a good beginning with some of the dead twigs from the larches. If there are laurel clippings to put on next, and there usually are, then success is assured. Soon the flames were licking up my initial work, and I proceeded to pile on hedge trimmings, the sweepings up of an apple tree that had blown down and been sawn up, and how sweet they made the air! Thistles, nettles, brambles, 
surplus raspberry canes that spring up everywhere, a holly bush that had lately been cut down, worthless gooseberry bushes, piles of ivy that had been cut from the walls, more barrow loads of stuff tipped on by Ursula, how the laurel flared and the yew crackled, and one's eyes smarted as the smoke swept round like a whirlwind and enveloped one at times. I am a great believer in the burning of all refuse vegetation. It does away with so much blight and vermin and plant disease and clears out mosquito haunts and is generally sanitary. Virginia had betaken herself to cooler climes, but Ursula and I worked at that heap, forking on new stuff to stop up flame bursts, till we too were shedding dew from our foreheads and our hands were almost sore with wielding the heavy forks. Yet a fascination keeps you at it, till you are smoke-dried and fire-toasted and arm-aching to the last degree. When the shades of evening finally call you in, as a rule, meals are most perfunctory when a bonfire is in progress, you are saturated from head to foot with the bonfire. Your very hair has absorbed the time-old pungent odour of the smoke of forest fires. And maybe months and months afterwards, you open a seldom-used wardrobe, where old gardening gear and shabby mackintoshes are kept, and suddenly you are overwhelmed with the scent of burning pear and birch leaves, and you, the lure of the woods calls aloud to you. You feel the sweep of the winds on the hills, alternating with the great swirls of grey-blue bonfire smoke. The cramped town vanishes, and you are in free open spaces once more and all because a certain tweed skirt or light gardening coat is hanging in the corner of the wardrobe. If you want a bonfire with a delicious scent that will haunt you with a poignant memory long after its ashes have gone the way of all things, pile up dead apple leaves and twigs, pine needles, beech leaves, the trimmings of the sweet bay bushes, brambles, rose stalks and larch, and the incense of the forest will be yours bringing with it a mystic sense of nearness to primeval things that no perfume sold in cut-glass bottles has yet been able to conjure up. We didn't wait till sundown, however, that day, for we were in the most thrilling part of the afternoon forking up, and our complexions were at their very, very worst, when Abigail tripped out and announced, "'The rector! Oh, you needn't worry about your appearance, ma'am!' "'Miss Virginia's talking to him. "'Yes, she's changed her dress "'and is telling him just what you look like.'" End of section 15